Well, I see so much of everything in narrative. It allows me to think differently when I'm when I'm in an argument with someone just personally, if we're having an argument, I can get a chance to ask myself, like, what are we actually, like, what's the conversation that we're having? And what's the thing that I'm protecting? When I say that things could be this way or should be this way, then I realize that I'm, I'm implicitly naming a narrative. And so then I get to ask myself, well, what's the narrative? I feel that I'm in a situation where I truly don't know where to start to introduce this week's contributing author, Dr. David Hooker. Hello, I'm Robin Stratton-Burkessel, host and creator of this show. Welcome, everyone. David, you have such a diversity in your professional portfolio, from law to divinity, with much in between. As I poked around all your credentials and what thrilled me was that I found out that you understudied in community theatre and were quite the dancer. Mm -hmm. You opened my eyes to Chicago stepping, Detroit ballroom and Cleveland hand dancing. I felt I had so much to learn and went to YouTube to do my research into dancing. Do you continue to perform on the dance floor? Well, I don't know if it's perform, but what we do in stepping and ballroom and hand dance is you make a community. There are people who know these different steps and patterns and practices, and then you can show up in a community and find out where people are dancing and go and fit in and find your people. And you can dance. And so, yes, every chance I get, I will dance. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's such an embodied practice. You know, it's beautiful. So, yeah, so that was a great delight to, for me to discover that. Thank you. Um, well, currently, you're an associate professor at the Practice of Conflict Transformation and Peacebuilding at the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. And your focus is unveiling the levels of narrative that both shape and heal conflict and trauma and that also contribute to societal change. And David, I read where you've been doing this work in multiple environments, local governments and state governments and national governments. You've worked with international NGOs and various organizations and communities on three continents in the United States, countries in Africa and in Europe. And what I'm referring to when I talk about this work, I'm refer referring to transformative community conferencing, conferencing, which I'm aware informs the work that you do to achieve what you seek to do for different communities in peace building. And so I'm really looking forward to your unpacking that for us um, in, this, in this conversation. However, before we dive into your chapter in the handbook, which is entitled Transformative Community Conferencing, a Constructionist Approach to a More Helpful, no, sorry, that's a More Hopeful Future. That's the, the subtitle, A Constructionist Approach to a More Hopeful Future. I do have a personal question for you. And sure. that is, um, what's been a thread or a number of threads in the parts of your narrative that shapes your life? that has led you to this work? 
I think that what I have discovered over the course of my life is that identity, my identity particularly, but all identities are processes in the sense that my identity is not a static thing, but it gets shaped by the different experiences and institutions and context in which I exist. And is particularly fascinating around areas of race where when I visited South Africa it, before apartheid fell and I learned that because I carried a U.S. passport, I had options. I could be black, I could be colored, I could be honorary white, which allowed me to recognize that you know, race to a great extent is politically constructed and that I'm not black or negro when I'm in the Dominican Republic and I'm not black when I'm in Haiti and I'm not black when I'm in Colombia uh, and I'm not tall enough to be black when I'm in South Sudan. And so all of those different contexts and environments allowed me to recognize that some part of my, what I would describe as an identity that has been assigned to me and in some ways, identities that I have embraced are processes that get filtered through history and get reformed in relationship to different institutions and different uh, structures and systems and contexts. And so that's not just for me, but I realize it's for all of us. And when those parts of your identity are stopping you from full flourishing, which has always been my pursuit is how do we create context in which people, individuals, families, communities can fully flourish when those identities are struggling for full flourishing? How do we understand their formation, their processing and reposition them in ways that create a trajectory towards full flourishing? Yeah. And so you told the story of when you went to um, South Africa, you know, while apartheid was still there or still the, the dominant um, structure there. What you described for me there was, you know, really embracing and understanding the orientation of social construction, right? right. And so I'm wondering, did, that, did you have that insight early, uh, then or did that come after? You know, sometimes you go through these experiences and then you find there, oh, my God, there's there's a body of work out there that legitimizes how I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing. So I'm wondering what came first for you? Well, no, that was part of, that was the beginning of a revelation. It wasn't that I had the insight when I got there, but it was part of my unpacking mm. of those insights. It's that these stories, I mean, mm. at, at a much more local level, I grew up in Cincinnati and would go to South Georgia where my, par my parents were both from every summer. And the idea of what was possible for a young black child in Cincinnati, the first stop north of the Mason-Dixon line, and what was possible or expected for a young black child in the deep south Georgia uh, was distinctly different. So I already had an inclination that there were stories about possibilities that were projected on you based on based on certain attitudes and assumptions about your identity. But 
when I got to South Africa, it exploded. I kind of saw the global nature of how these narratives work at a national policy level in the sense that if you're traveling with an American passport, there are a number of places that I could go that others who look like me and others with whom I could relate Mm -hmm. couldn't go, not because of their capacities or their resources, but because of an identity that had been assigned to them. Mm -hmm. So it really started deepening my pursuit of constructing a world where everybody can fully flourish. Mm. And so how did you start to do that? Well, the first thing I did was I left the uh, clinic. I started doing, my first graduate work was in minority mental health. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which psychology constructs people in certain ways. Once you have been assigned a diagnosis, what most people do with their diagnosis in the first few months or years is they study it so that they can perfect it. People want to be good at what you say that they are. And so they will perfect their diagnosis. I recognize that by identifying some fatal flaw in people's character, I was contributing to, or in fact, in some ways, hardening the likelihood that they would not full flourish. They would not fully flourish. And so I left the mental health clinic going off to find another way to work with people that didn't allow the projection so that we could name what you're struggling with and what might be a desired alternative, but that it didn't come inside of a quote unquote scientifically constructed narrative Mm -hmm. of deficiency. Mm -hmm. That gave me chills because I can relate to that in a very different context. And I won't, I won't go into that because that's my story. Yeah, so you you left that practice because, let me paraphrase that, so because you felt that you were then almost perpetuating the diagnosis that they were given rather than, you know, helping them to find a life that is more flourishing. Well, once they... Once they're given a diagnosis, many people relate to their diagnosis as an essential part of their character that someone has identified for them. Somebody, usually someone smarter than them or more well-informed, has identified. Oh, the greater power, perceived power. Right. And so it's it's in this once it becomes an essential part of you, then you build it in. And so Mm -hmm. it becomes a constraint Mm -hmm. to the West rest of the way that you live. And so you incorporate, you know, I'm male, I've got schizotypical tendencies, I'm Mm. being confronted. What is the thing that I should do in this moment? So you begin to perfect that as an essential aspect of your being. Mm -hmm. And it felt, because I really wanted to just work with people to help do problem solving and, you know, move towards full flourishing, where they didn't see themselves as essentially wrong or broken, uh, I realized that the mental health field, at least as it occurred to me in those in those days and moments, wasn't providing that trajectory. It was creating spaces, and ultimately it was creating spaces for people to accommodate to and learn how to act better and perform better in the face of challenges, but not necessarily to undo the systems and structures or to resist the narratives that were creating them 
as deficient or broken or otherwise flawed. So what did you do then? Well, I originally went to, well, two things happened simultaneously. I started doing mediation. Uh-huh. Like, like mediation seemed to me to create a space where people could come with problems and nobody has to be wrong to sit at the table. We just bring our various uh, analysis and understandings of the current you know, conflict context. Nobody has to be wrong to begin with, and then we can sort out together how we can move through. So I started doing mediation more as a hobby or as a side gig. And I went off to study public health practices and particularly mental health finance from within the world realm of public health mm-hmm. with the intention of finding ways that people could get access to service, that we could repurpose the, the monies so that people could get access to service that wasn't directly tied to a pathology. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges in the mental health field is that because the variation in, the variation in diagnoses determine the number of sessions that you could get with a therapist, the amount of resource that would be made available for pharmacological Mm. interventions and those kinds of things. And so there was a way in which the payment or following the money might be able to create a greater space for psychologists and psychiatrists to actually engage people in the practice of full flourishing Mm. without having it impact their practice in terms of the wealth, the remuneration that they would get for doing that. Because the way that practice was set up, they needed to do the pathologizing in order to get paid. Yeah, yeah. So looking for new models, financial models within mental health that might free some space Mm -hmm. to allow a different kind of practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with the um, mediation that you were doing, when did the narrative mediation, the narrative practice light you up, if I can say that, that you found relevance and value in that? The narrative piece came late in the game. In fact, I have been doing work around trauma healing and restorative justice and things like after 9-11, we were doing strategies for trauma awareness and resilience. And I was writing a text on transforming historical harms and got near the end of that book, the Transforming Historical Harms text. And throughout the book, I have been saying these are narrative practices for history, healing, connection, and action, which were the four dimensions of the Transforming Historical Harms model. Mm-hmm. And it was late in the writing when the funder and publisher were looking for the final uh, version of the manual, that I realized that I was saying when I was writing, I was writing narrative, but really all I meant was story, mm-hmm. and that there was a deeper distinction to narrative that was much more significant and much more powerful for transformational purposes. Mm. And so the narrative piece actually came late in the game, although I always understood that people brought their stories and that their stories had perspectives and their stories were informed by history and it was 
you know, culturally and contextually formed in ways that your story would never be like mine. And so I, I understood intuitively mm-hmm. the narrative, but I had not yet fully infused the narrative theory, you know, Winslade or Jane Combs or Michael White or any of those folks. I hadn't fully infused mm-hmm. that until actually late in the game. So I came to narrative intuitively and then found it uh, later theoretically. Mm-hmm. That sounds a little bit like your going to South Africa story where you were immersed in the experience and doing these things, having these insights and this awareness, and then finding there was a whole body of theory that supported you that's called social construction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, exactly. And now you're writing these stories and, and finding out there's a whole body of work and theory that actually supports narrative practices, right? Right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's that's lovely. I mean, that's so... Um, enlivening when you personally have those insights and that experience when you think oh my god you know I'm onto something here this makes such sense to me I guess technically I would be considered a grounded theorist (laughs) 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 absolutely yeah that's gorgeous Yeah. yeah and so talk to me a little bit about how you see narrative practice um as as different or the benefits of that, before we actually move into the transformative community conferencing, which I'd like you to go into a bit more detail. But just overarchingly, can you give us some sense of the value and what lights you up with narrative practice? Anything more you'd like to add to that? Oh, absolutely. So I I love the power and the possibility that exists inside of narrative practices in the sense that I have always been aligned with people who are committed to systems reform, broad-scale, structural practice reform. And once I had fully appreciated the narrative insight, which is that you can never understand the systems by studying the systems, and you can Mm -hmm. never understand the, you can never reform the structure by reforming the policies and the practices within the structure. You have to change the narrative milieu in which that structure makes sense. Structures and systems and relational patterns and practices all conform to narratives that typically are unveiled and discourses that are typically unquestioned. And so if you want to actually do systemic change, you have to, at the same time that you're changing the structure, what I call the aftermath, You have to be changing the narrative, the legacy, the history, the folklore, the mythology, the lies that get repeated over and over again that do the sense-making for the institution. And so in any arena, justice, education, health, socializing, family, in every sphere of the ecology, of the human ecology, there are narratives that cause the systems to make sense. And when you can help people to see that, then people understand that it is narrative work that we have to be doing. Mm. Uh, In conflict transformation, one of the ways that people do conflict analysis is through what they call a tree analysis, where they look at the root causes, and, and then the trunk is like the systems and structures, and then the fruit on the tree are like the symptoms that emerge. Mm -hmm. And what I say is 
it's not fruit work, it's not trunk work, it's not root work, it's dirt work that matters mm-hmm. for real transformation. And the dirt is where the narrative and the discourse resides. Yeah, and you go digging. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> you have to. And turn stuff over and see yeah. what's there. And and every time you turn over a plot of dirt, you see that there are all kinds of other little living organisms mm-hmm. in there. And it's not just solid patch of dirt. It's a whole ecosystem mm-hmm. of narratives and structures and mm-hmm. historical moments that are all kind of coexisting to keep that piece alive. Absolutely. That's a beautiful image. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. I expect your curiosity is aroused as you listen to David, not only to his story, but his orientation to life that is grounded in social construction ideas. Here's one of the key founders of the Taos Institute to remind us what the Taos Institute offers. At the Taos Institute, we offer a wealth of resources for practitioners, scholars, students, and the curious. Free webinars, online conversations, book reviews, courses, and more. All in order to support the development of social constructionist practices around the world. We invite you to participate. Please visit taosinstitute.net. So, David, let's move to to the chapter that you have written for the book and um, the title I've already given, Transformative Community Conferencing, with the subtitle of, I have to go back and look for it now, um, A Constructionist Approach to a More Hopeful Future. And there you are um, um, giving examples and telling stories around this this approach, transformative community conferencing. So I would love you to talk a little bit about that, um, maybe how you came to that, and then some stories or a particular story of where you take us through the process. So transformative community conferencing, like every other aspect of the, every other scholarly aspect of my life emerged from experience Mm -hmm. more than from the having a theory and going in to apply it. Mm-hmm. Um, my question, when I finished writing the Transforming Historical Harms Manual, and I realized that I had done a, a bit of a disservice by only talking about stories and not really unpacking the, the value of narrative, that's when I went to the Talis Institute. That's when I went to Tilburg. That's when I started doing my work, really was to critique my earlier work to say that there's more power in narrative than there is in story. Mm-hmm. And I was working uh, with a group in Greensboro uh, connected to theater. I'm very much always going to find my way around theater. And we were trying to think about the notion of performing equality. Mm-hmm. So you can name equality, and even when there are spaces within legal and social you know, systems that allow for equality, if people have never actually embodied it, if you've never actually performed it, then it may not arise even when the circumstances, the conditions are permissible for it to be. And so we were going to learn how to perform equality. Right. 
So what we thought we would do is go, I've been working in Greensboro after they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in response to events where there was a, you know, somewhat of a massacre, uh, Ku Klux Klan and the Communist Workers Party, NAACP had a big clash and several people got killed and other people got injured. And then there were a series of state and federal trials and everybody was exonerated, even though many of the shootings were actually filmed and available. And Mm -hmm. so they needed to do something else. And so they did a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was less than it. While it was valuable in some sense, it didn't quite fully accomplish the task that they had hoped. And so we were punching around looking for other opportunities to continue that work. And part of what I wanted to do was investigate with people from all around Greensboro this notion of performing equality. And so we went to see a play together and we did a process, a narratively modified focused conversation. So focused conversations is the Institute for Cultural Affairs. They have their whole ORID method, uh, observation, reflection, interpretation, decision. Mm -hmm. And I modified that so that reflection and interpretation were really just embedded in your personal story. So observation, then tell us a story about how you're making meaning and then what what did you make it mean? So we were doing that. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to keep talking. And so I was using narrative, the basic narrative framework of externalizing and objectifying and then naming and mapping. And I wanted to see, because John Winslade, Gerald Monk, uh, David, Michael White, a few others, mm-hmm. uh, Jill Friedman, Gene Combs, they do it in relationship to individual and relational, like personal relational practices. And I was wondering how you could take those same forms of inquiry and ratchet them up to understand what would happen in the creation of entire community context. Mm. And so we began by dissecting a play. What was the problematic in the play? How did you name that and how would you map it? So everybody having seen it together could begin to map that. And then I asked, well, let's imagine in the same way that this play was constructed, let's imagine that Greensboro, that we're working in Greensboro, North Carolina at the time, let's imagine that Greensboro is just a large, ongoing community theater project. Right. Mm -hmm. What are the unveiled, what are the previously unconsidered narratives? What are the background stories in the script of Greensboro Mm -hmm. that are driving your relational patterns and practices that we can help to see how it structures the distribution of resources, relationships, power in the community. And so we started unpacking and Mm. moved closer to this notion of what became a transformative community conference. Mm. So having taken a look at it and I said, oh, I could refine that modeling of inquiry in certain ways to make it more structured and more, even more powerful. And so Greensboro was the beginning of the unfolding of what became transformative community conferencing. Hmm. 
So that you had a process to follow so that then as you applied this or experienced this in different contexts, the context would determine very different outcomes depending on who who was present and what the history was and what the culture was and so on. Exactly. Very different outcomes. And it was it's such that people can begin to see one of the beauties of a transformative community conferencing model is that if you get people from varying parts of a community, many communities, especially in the United States, but in many other parts of the world, in South Sudan and Myanmar and uh, any number of other places, communities are stratified and divided by class, by ethnicity, by race in ways that people can actually organize their lives to have very little meaningful contact with others. Mm. And so then if you do the work to identify an effective cross-section of members of all the different quadrants and swaths of community and have them come together, when they are naming their experience, it's revelatory for people in other parts of the community who can actually see what they're saying in terms of what's happening. They can Mm -hmm. see it, but it's only once you name it as a response to a problematic that everybody is responding to, that they can begin to develop an, an empathy and appreciation for it and recognize that they have a joint responsibility and a joint opportunity to shift it. And so that's really the power of the conferencing model is people have their experiences seen, validated, and then they are equally positioned in the pursuit of, in in both naming what the community currently looks like and as a basis from which to begin naming a narrative of a preferred future, a shared narrative of a preferred future. That's beautiful. Yeah, so what you're really doing is beginning to create for everyone or facilitate new habits of seeing. Right. Um, And they see what a a desired or a possible future is, and they can co-create that through this new sense of understanding um, with each other. Well, it's not just that they get a chance to have a desired future, but thing about most communities is even while there is a dominant narrative that is often marginalizing and oppressive, there are almost always small counterexamples of a possible future where people are experimenting and taking little catalytic measures that resist that domination and that marginalization. And so you can reverse map those to see what makes that possible. And when you do the reverse mapping, what you notice is that both this dominant narrative and this counter narrative already exist. We're not creating a new preferred narrative out of whole cloth. You're looking at what currently exists in small measure Mm -hmm. in the community and trying to make a choice as to how we can, if we prefer this smaller counter narrative, the resistance narrative, if we prefer that, then we can make choices about how what we would need to do to change the relationships, resources, structure patterns, testimonial authority among the people in order to make this the more dominant narrative. Mm-hmm. So it's not just imagining out of whole cloth, but it's actually 
again, digging in the dirt and seeing what else is living mm-hmm. that's not necessarily predominant. Yeah. And David, do you find that this is equally effective with small, discrete communities versus amorphous, like townships? So, you know, is it is it more effective if you can contain it or the, the people feel that they have greater autonomy and power in not only imagining their preferred future, but actually being able to co-construct and co-create this preferred future? Well, yes and no. I think that if it's smaller, more manageable, like we've done transformative community conferencing processes at small universities, in congregations, in um, smaller community and civil society organizations, in a number of places like that where the container is fairly specific. Right. Yeah. So the question is one of subsidiarity. Like we, the problem, subsidiarity is the notion that we solve the problem at the lowest level at which it can be solved. Mm-hmm. Like, and so there are problems that are in the container of a congregation or a education system, a public school system, or a university that are specific to the university. But then there are problems that actually are just infused. They're being filtered through the life of the smaller organization, but they really are a much larger problem. And so there are pieces where people feel in these smaller, more contained settings that they can manage what's there. And yet, They often have to acknowledge that much of what's influencing us is outside of our control. And so the the larger you go uh, in terms of Mm -hmm. larger, amorphous, bigger Mm -hmm. village, you can grasp and then segment. Like if we name, if we notice multiple issues, then we can kind of segment them off, identify who are the proper players and voices to specifically respond to that Mm -hmm. in the larger process of narrative creation. We've named this larger narrative and then we can task the proper group with addressing their specific component of the larger community narrative. Excellent. Um, Look, another curiosity I had, and, and that is when you begin to work with a community you know, your transformative community conferencing process begins with this statement that, oh, this idea that the people aren't the problem, but the problem is the problem, right? Yes. And so um, unpacking that. But here's my question and my curiosity is that when I was reading your chapter, some of the problems that were named came over as emotions like fear and apathy and isolation Um, inequitable power, hatred, and so on. And so what I'm wondering is how people did not name events like shootings or hunger or drugs, but but they came up with emotion. So that was a surprise to me. Well, they may not have come up with the emotion right away. They may not have come up with the problematic right away. So if someone says that drugs are a problem, Uh for instance, there's a high level of substance abuse, then we're going to do three to five whys back. Like, why 
is there high use of substances? Well, people are in pain. Great. So we'll write that down. So there's substance abuse. There's also pain. Why are mm-hmm. people in pain? Mm-hmm. Well, they're in pain because of their lack of recognition, the inability to feel like they can fully flourish. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? Why is that? A, and so if you do three to five whys back, mm-hmm. you can eventually get to some of these baseline, these deep sub rosa kind of sources, because if you map that, when you get down to the uh, identity construction that limits full flourishing, you also notice that that same set of narratives are producing other things as well. So while we're talking about mm-hmm. drugs, we should also be talking about suicide and eating disorders. And we should also be talking about unemployment and underproductivity because all of them, in many ways, if we do three to five wise back, they all end up in, in or around the same place. And so we do some, a bit of uh, inquiry to get us back to those kind of fundamental down at the bottom. There's no why before this. There's not much of a why before fear. You know, mm-hmm. uh, fear and the unknown and the, uh, and the fear of the unknown are kind of at the bottom of a whole lot, right? Yeah. There's not much why before that. Yeah. So one of the beauties, one of the loveliest parts of, I think, of the transformative community conferencing process is when people have had the opportunity to begin naming those problematics. Mm -hmm. Then you break into some smaller, some smaller groups for story sharing in ways that you get to say, if you look inside of the circle where all these problematics have been named, describe or me uh, at a time where fear or apathy or not knowing or, or whatever it was shaped your reaction or your actions in a community. How, what is it that invites you to say or do or not say or not do? And then when you start having people to share those experiences, in addition to the general mapping, those deep, you know, personalized stories allow you to see another and notice that what they're doing is kind of performing in response to their performative response. Their, the creation is, is helping to create community, but it's really in response to these problematics that we're all reacting to and depending on our Mm -hmm. positionality, depending on our access to certain resources and our historical perspective in relationship to kind of power hierarchy in a community, we're all reacting to many of the same problematics. It's just that we have different resources and power history, power wounding, Mm -hmm. Vanessa Jackson would say power wounding to draw Mm -hmm. on as we craft our response. And so you'll notice that these that the community is just a collective, ongoing, intersectional pattern of performative responses to these deep problematics. And before I invite David to continue, let's hear from Dr. Mary Gergen, one of the co-founders of the Taos Institute 
and she tells us a little bit more about what the Taos Institute offers. The Taos Institute is a nonprofit educational organization that supports the development of social constructionist practices around the world. A central view of the Taos Institute is that it is through our relationships that we create meaning in our lives. Curious? Visit us at taosinstitute.net to find out more about our programs, books, webinars, and more. And now let's return to my interview with Dr. David Hooker. And when you do this work, what are you witnessing in the community that you're working with? You know, in the moment, as you go through this process. There are usually some really powerful epiphanies of people saying, um, oh, I get it. And I see where my reacting in this way produces a thing that I would otherwise resist, which produces this other thing that I'm concerned about. And so there are ways that I, my performance contributes to the construction of community or my lack of awareness about the resources that others have to respond in ways similar to the way that I would perform, how, how that's helping to shape community. So there's a, there's a deeper awareness, there's a sense almost of coming to understand yeah. the community in a very different way. Yeah. It's, it's not quite the matrix, but you can start seeing the shadows and the way that there are energies that are producing what you're seeing and it's not the mm. people producing what you're seeing, but there's energies producing what's happening and mm. that you all could be colleagues, cohort, cooperators mm. in shifting it if you chose to. Yeah. And what I'm imagining as you describe that is that people becoming enlivened to realizing they can take back their power in certain ways. And how can they do more of that? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the hopeful future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would like to invite you to say something about, you know, what excites you about transformational community conferencing as an innovation in social constructionist practices. So I think that the, for me, the biggest, the most exciting piece is who you can get to come to the table to participate in systems reform and structural reform. When I left the mental health clinic, one of the things that offended me was that in order for people to have access to help, they had to accept that they had a fatal flaw in their character. The diagnosis was them acquiescing to somebody else's determination that they were wrong or broken or essentially compromised in some way and that we could help you to make a difference. Often in these systems and community structures where marginalization is going on, many times when the analysis is taking place, it is making certain people and certain positions wrong 
And in order for those folks to come to participate in transformation, they have to start from the place of accepting that they are wrong, that they mm-hmm. are you know, willfully contributing to someone else's oppression. Mm-hmm. And I think the nature of the invitation of transformative community conferencing is such that you may in fact not know, like all of us are on different sides of the power distribution dynamic. And it is very possible that none of us recognize that we're responding and reacting to the same set of problematic dynamics. And so recognizing that it doesn't require anybody to be wrong to recognize how all of us are contributing through our performance to the construction of this community and how the current construction benefits some, disadvantages others, and those advantages and disadvantages have compounded over time. And so we've got work. But and so we've, we've got a way that we can all contribute. We can all work to shifting the trajectory that mm-hmm. is embedded in those narratives. And so um, it, the innovation is in the invitation, I think. Mm-hmm. I have another little job for you. I'd like you to complete a sentence for me. <laughs> okay. And it's to do with social innovation and your work. And so see how you go with this one, David. The social innovation that we most need for the work of building hopeful futures is? A clear understanding that we are all existing in processes that are told through narrative, Mm. processes that are perpetuated through narrative. Yeah. Yeah. When we wake up to that, it would be very, very helpful. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and expansive and liberating. <laughs> um, so, David, how has this work changed or impacted your life? Well, I see so much of everything in narrative. It allows me to think differently when I'm when I'm in an argument with someone just personally, if we're having an argument, I can get a chance to ask myself, like, what are we actually, like, what is the conversation that we're having? And what's the thing that I'm protecting? When I say that things could be this way or should be this way, then I realize that I'm, I'm implicitly naming a narrative. And so mm-hmm. then I get to ask myself, well, what's the narrative? What's the story that you're telling yeah. about how you're normalizing the world? Mm-hmm. And is that story one that allows the person that you're currently engaged with to fully flourish. That's why they're reacting so vehemently to my construction of the way that I say the world should be or could be Mm -hmm. because they don't yet see how it could allow them to fully flourish or maybe it doesn't. And so that's the inquiry that we should be having. And so at a personal and relational and professional level, I get to recognize that it's just a story, right? It's mm-hmm. just, and, and so we're often shaped by narratives. So we get to unpack them and, and make them mm-hmm. more visible to then determine whether they support uh, a regime of full flourishing or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to be able to say regularly, often repeated to myself and to everybody else, and I've got you know, friends and family that now know it because they've heard me say it so often and they kind of will either snarkily or <laughs> with a certain level of insight, they'll say the people aren't the problem. 
David, the problem is the problem. I'm like, exactly. Here we go. How do we do that? You know? Yeah, you can check yeah. that one off. Hey, um, I've impacted that one. That's great. Yes. And of course, we also, this enables us to restory or reauthor. Yeah. We don't have to stick to that original story. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's what you ask. Like, is there is there something in the current narrative that you're living in mm -hmm. that is not possible? Something that you desire for your life, mm -hmm. you desire for the life of your community, that's not possible in the current narrative, the way that you've got it organized. Well, what's the different story? What's the different narrative? What, 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 would, we, what would it take for us to choose that one? Because it's a choice. Every breath you take, it's a choice as to which story you're going to support and organize your life around. Because it turns out, None of them are actually true. What makes it true is that we've organized our lives around it. Mm. Yes, I often find myself, well, no, that's my mother's story. That's not my story. Or, exactly. <laughs> you know, whose story am I telling here? That's right. Well, look, as we close out, David, this has been lovely. I've just really loved your energy and what you've shared here. Is there something additional you'd like to say that comes to you and that I haven't? Um, I haven't. No, I, I think that the one thing is, you know, I work in the field of international conflict transformation and community building, but I have noticed that from many of the invitations that I have, that the transformative community conferencing process and narrative in general, narrative theory and practices in general, are really invaluable in many, many other areas and dimensions and spheres and spheres of life. And so while we're talking about it in this way about community transformation and conflict resolution, it applies in every other aspect and avenue of life. And so for anybody who hasn't like taken on or at least investigated kind of the narrative turn, I would certainly encourage it. Yeah, thank you. And that reminds me to say um, that I've been having the pleasure here to speak with Dr. David Anderson Hooker, and you'll find links to some of Dr. Hooker's work um, on the show notes page for this episode of Positivity Strategist at positivitystrategist.com slash podcast. And um, there we'll have a number of resources um, that you can access. And if you wish, you can reach out to David yourself to find out more about his work and the contributions he's making. So, David, thank you so much for this lovely conversation. And I look forward to perhaps meeting you at a Taos event someday. Robin, I look forward to it. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you for the invitation. My pleasure. My interview with Dr. David Hooker is filled with examples of how the worldview of social construction opens us up to dig deeply into the narratives that inform our personal stories and how unearthing these narratives is transformative, leading us to a more hopeful future. Now be sure to watch out for the next episode when my guest is Dr. Lois Hulsman speaking on the topic of social therapeutics as play, performance and becoming. As always, thank you for listening.